You guys can hear me? Okay. I have a pretty loud voice, so actually, I don't even need this mic. Um, but as we continue on with our Gospel of John series, uh, one of the things that hopefully has just been very apparent as we study um, this Gospel is that John continues to highlight one single purpose throughout this book. And that single purpose has always been that people would believe and have eternal life. That is his hope in writing. And, and so every single passage is almost highlighting the fact of wanting people to believe. And one of the things that John did from the very beginning of this passage in chapter 1, uh, verse 1, is you notice that he wanted to show that there was a plan of God, that God had a plan. From the very beginning it says, in the beginning was the Word. And what is it highlighting? That Jesus was always there in the beginning. It's not like he just... Yes, he, he became a, a man, uh, he, he came down on earth in, in flesh, but he's always been there. And so hence today's passage is called God's Plan, and I know immediately what pops up into some of our minds is a very famous song called God's Plan by Drake. Um, I want to make it clear, this, this is a totally different plan of God. Uh, Drake, in his song, basically makes a proclamation that it's because of God's plan that he's so successful. It's because of God's plan that this is where he's at right now, and uh, he doesn't want to be alone, and all these different like messages throughout his song. Well, as we look at today's passage, we're going to see there's a totally different plan that God has, and Drake has it all wrong. Uh, today's passage includes one of the most, actually it is the most famous passage in Scripture, John 3.16. It's a passage that even atheists know. It's something that, like, uh, you don't even have to be a Christian. And people just know it by heart. Why? Because I believe it encapsulates the message of the gospel so succinctly in one verse that it shares with us his plan. But I also believe it's full of deep theology. So today, uh, in, in today's passage, in today's just preaching, um, I plan to try to go in depth with theology. Um, and as I was preparing this, I was deeply convicted. I mean, so convicted that I was like, man, I cannot just... When I looked at this, I was like, oh, it's going to be an easy sermon. Oh, out of here in 20 minutes, whatever. We all know this passage. But as I was studying it, I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much in it. Um, and I asked that as we look into the, today's passage, that we would also just kind of open our hearts before God and allow the word of Christ to speak to us. And one of the things I always try to do is I humble... I try to humble myself before God as I preach God's word, and I try not to let my voice be the center of it all. I don't want um, Einstein to be preaching. I want God's word to be highlighted and to be magnified and glorified. And so today, I, I'm just speaking purely from what I'm reading and my convictions from the word. Uh, it is not from me. Um, before we, we go into that, uh, a quick background, just to kind of fill us in, because I know we had a break between a week weekend. Um, two weeks ago, we looked at, in John chapter 3, that uh, Jesus was approached by a man named Nicodemus, right? We know that he was um, a high-ruling Jewish uh, elder, it's likely the Sanhedrin or whatever. Uh, but he approaches Jesus in, at the nighttime, which probably signifies he's a little ashamed uh, to be viewed in Jesus' presence. Um, and some of this passage, the language, actually highlights um, maybe his condition. But... Um, Today, uh, and uh, actually, sorry, 
two weeks ago, as we looked at that, what Jesus ends up telling Nicodemus is, hey, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus is super confused, like, what? How can I go into the womb? And he's just really lost. And Jesus says, you got to be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And without that, you cannot go. And so today's passage is actually expanding upon that idea of being born again. What else must we do, or what must we do to receive eternal life? And um, just a quick little side note of this passage. As many scholars, they actually um, think and believe that um, from 16 and on, or it's like debatable, um, is actually not Jesus' words. Um, They believe that it's actually John's explanations here. It's him giving a commentary. But um, today, I'm not going to go into, like, why they believe that. I just kind of want to throw that out there. And, um, but the point is this. Regardless, whether it's Jesus speaking in this passage or it's John speaking, this is the inspired word of God. This is not just any man's thoughts. This is not my thoughts. But this is from God. And if we are all in agreement with that, then that's all that matters. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16, it tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. Right? Uh, if, if you're in agreement with the solas, which I think we should, the first sola we should agree on is sola scriptura, that scripture alone is our final authority. And so today, as we look at scripture, whether it's Jesus' words or John's words, let us affirm that this is God's word and he's speaking to us. So let's pray before we receive his word. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we want to give you glory. Father, I pray that right now that as I speak, as I In preaching your word, may I be faithful to your text. I pray that it would not be my voice, but it would be your voice alone. Father, um, what a heavy passage this is and the implications on our eternity um, is on believing in you. And I pray, God, that if there's anyone that does not believe in you in this room, that, God, that you would open up their hearts and you have mercy and you pour out your grace here. But I pray that, above all, may we be convicted to want to share this message that is um, from today's passage unto the world, unto our family members, unto everyone we meet. May we be deeply convicted to respond to your word um, and not just receive it alone, God. So thank you, God. Um, Would you open up our ears and our hearts to you this morning? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, So in today's passage, um, what I aim to do is in a sense, give us a, a snapshot of the gospel or kind of give us a gospel presentation and to explain that God had a plan and that there's something that we actually have to do as believers as well, okay? So uh, if, you know, some of you youth students or maybe some of you adults, like, you have a difficult time of explaining the gospel message to someone, I'm hoping you can almost use, like, these uh, main points to share the gospel with someone, okay? So the first point is this. When we look at our passage, the first thing we always start off with when we're sharing the gospel message is we have to proclaim that God exists. There is a God. And that God had this single primary motive towards us. And what was that single primary motive? That motive was love. Okay? Ah, all right, there we go. All right. It was a radical motive. What does our passage say in John 3.16? It starts off with these words. For God so loved the world. Why did Jesus come into this world? Why did he endure such mockery? Why did he suffer 
and go through shame and pain and go in human flesh and be humiliated that way? The answer is simply because he loved us. And that was the primary driving force and the simple primary motivation of God, of sending his one and only son, of dying on the cross for us. And you see this right here? These words were actually very, very shocking to the people hearing this for the first time. What would have not been shocking are the words, for God so loved the world, or for God so loved the Jews. And all the Jews would have been like, amen, yeah, we are the chosen people of God. But John highlights, no, he actually loved the world. It includes not only the Jews, but all the Gentiles. And all the Jews are like, what? How could this be? That is God's primary motive, is to love us. And that's why he did these things. Uh, just a quick side note. Um, this word, love, is a, in Greek, it's a verb called agapao. I think we've all heard a form of this, the noun form, or I don't know if it's noun form, agape. Um, I'm not trying to be like snobby or anything as a, as a seminary, as a Greek scholar or whatever. I, I'm not even like a Greek scholar, but a lot of our Greek scholars basically agree that the word agape does not mean some fo- higher form or divine form of, of love. And I think that's a very common misconception in Scripture is that agape means a perfect love. Um, no, it just simply means love, actually. Um, if you look throughout Scripture, this word agape or agapao, uh, the verb form of love, is used all the time. So if you just real quickly look at Luke six thirty-two, and there's many, many examples like this. If you agapao, those who agapao you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners, what do they do? Agapao, those who agapao them. If it is truly a higher form of love, a perfect love, it doesn't make sense in this passage. How can sinners have the perfect love of God towards other sinners? Um, doesn't mean that. Um, so w- w- why am I sharing this? I- I'm sharing this because what does this love mean then for us? That that it was God's primary motivation for us. Well, there's two things that I think is very um, great, and it, it tells us what his love means. The first is, there's some really good news to this. The first is this, is that even though there isn't a special word that describes the love of God, that really encapsulates, that is primarily reserved for only describing God's love, uh, the fact is, there is a God who loves us unconditionally. We have a God who loves us just because. And that is so amazing. And that's the first and primary point we make in the gospel presentations. You have a God who loves you. Scripture says that even though we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, um, and you know, oftentimes when we confess our love to one another, we're confessing it in the terms of what we really love about that person, right? Like, oh man, I, I really love that you're beautiful. I I love that, you know, you're just strong, caring, or you're just a sweet person. We kind of give out these characteristics. But God does not have conditions based on why he loves us. He just loves us. And that's the most amazing thing, is that he loves us unconditionally. Secondly, it's great because without his initiation of loving us first, Scripture tells us that we would not be able to love him in response. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, it says, We love 
Because he loved us first. It was his initiation first that allowed us then to respond back in loving him. You see, without his love, we would not be able to respond. It's his free gift of grace that initiated us into regeneration and a relationship with him. It, it's, uh, he's given us faith, our salvation. It is through his love. And so what is not the primary motive that, uh, that God is doing? The primary motive uh, is not judgment. Okay? In verse 17, um, yes. Uh, in verse 17, it clearly states, um, <laughs> this is what verse 17, 17 says. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's primary motive was clear, was to love and to save. And it is not driven by condemnation, by judgment unto the world. It's clear that he wanted to save. He wanted to it's uh, all of the things that God is doing, the igniting force that causes him to send Jesus into the world. Uh, the, the things that God is doing, it is driven because he loves us unconditionally and he loves us deeply. So be encouraged that we have a father who loves us perfectly. There's no one else in this world that would love you perfectly, unconditionally, as God the Father does. This is the first point of the gospel. The second point is this. We experience a problem, though. There is a big problem. Oh, that's great news. We have a God who loves us, but we run into a wall. This wall is, we're all sinners, and we're all separated from God, and we're actually all condemned. And there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. Nothing. You can try to be a good person. You can try to do all these great things. But there's nothing you personally cannot do to save your own self. Throughout this passage, we see this language suggesting our total depravity. Look at it with me in 17b. In order that the world might be saved through him. It is showing that we need to be rescued. All of us, we need to be saved. Verse 18. Whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. You're already condemned when you do not believe. And continues on, people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. We're all evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. This shows our total depravity. We're all doomed. We can't save ourselves. We can't just come to God. And until we believe, this passage tells us we're condemned already. We're not in right standing before God when we're at a position of unbelief. And the moment we believe then, we're in good standing. And we are saved. We have eternal life. The point is this. When we die, we don't have a second chance of saying, God, now I believe. I mean, it's so real. Like, I'm standing before you. I see, I see the gates of heaven. This is, I, I believe without a doubt. No, you don't get a second chance. Why? Because this passage says you're condemned already. In the moment that last breath exits our earthly bodies, that's it. The passage tells us we're condemned already. Even in verse 19, it tells us even a even darker truth. 
people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? It says, because their works were evil. They were not willing to live by the truth. Or the pride maybe got in the way. Or two, lest his works should be exposed. It denotes like this sense of shame and not having conviction. But you know what also I think it brings out? It's this third point. Because they're also incapable of coming to God on their own. Um, now, I'm going to do a quick side. Uh, I, I'm actually reversing some of, rearranging some of the notes in um, the handout that was printed out. I'm going to talk about real quickly about regeneration precedes faith. Uh, I talked about this with the youth two weeks ago, um, how I believe that's what Jesus was talking about with Nicodemus. If you need to be born again, and then because of that, uh, it produces faith. Um, but I want, I want to give the side disclaimer. This is not like... I'm not saying you have to be in a full agreement with me. I mean, Christians all across, they, you know, don't, some agree, some don't agree. Um, the point I will make at the end, um, or I will connect why I'm bringing this up and how I think this actually brings about a, a type of response in us. Um, in the end, I do believe our application is the same. Whether we believe in faith preceding regeneration or regeneration preceding faith. But I think it highlights something that we're incapable of coming to God on our own. Um, I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. He says, If left to ourselves in our spiritual deadness, we would never incline ourselves to the things of God. Um, And so what do we see? We have this little chart. I actually um, looked this up. Um, You can find this on this website called monergarism.com. It's a very reformed website. And there's three things. There's one, we have a responsibility as mankind we have responsibility towards god but there's this inability but then we face god's grace that god does something for us and so what is our responsibility we see throughout scripture that we have to come to god we have we've got to confess him as lord we need to believe right we're commanded to do these things but then throughout scripture we see that we're actually incapable of doing that on our own we can't go to god because of our own sin but where do we see the grace and mercy of god it's only by god's grace and regeneration can we actually come to him? He is the giver of faith. He gives us a new heart. He draws him, uh, us to himself. Um, I just pulled up some examples, but I think there's actually a lot of examples throughout Scripture. Uh, I'll just go through it real quickly. It says in John 3, 16, in our passage, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is our responsibility, right? We need to believe in him. We're called to do that. But then verse 19 and 20, it says we're actually unable to. We love the darkness rather than the light. Or uh, we do not come to the light on our own. And so what do we see? The grace of God in verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. It's God who carries out the work of regeneration in our hearts. Another responsibility man is to come to him. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. In John chapter 6, later on we're going to study this passage Jesus says, no one can come to me. Nobody can. Except, what? Through the grace of God. Unless the Father who sent me does what? Draws him to me. And I will raise him up on the last day. Another responsibility, man, is confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In Romans 10, 1 Corinthians says, no one could say that Jesus is Lord. Except, what? In the Holy Spirit. And that is the grace of God that we see. Another responsibility is he commands all people everywhere to repent. Well, the inability of man is that even 
the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. The world is unable to receive because the world neither sees him nor knows him. And we see the grace of God being poured out when God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snares of the devil. What we see over and over again is that regeneration precedes faith. Now again, you don't necessarily have to believe this, but I urge you to not go by feelings, but more so off of the authority of Scripture. I'm using that as, this is my evidence of that. Um, regardless, here is the solution. Okay? This is not the solution of being saved. The solution is very simple. The third point of the gospel is that God prov- provided a way out. We have a way to salvation through who? His only son. In verse 16, it says that he gave his only son, in verse 17, in order that the world might be saved through him, which is Jesus. Um, this is where we get two ideas in the solas, um, which is coming from the Protestant Reformation. Sola gratia, which means grace alone. We're only saved by grace alone. You're not saved by works. You're not saved through other things. And one of the greatest forms of God's grace being poured out to us is the sending of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, as mentioned in this passage, which is solus Christus, that we're saved by Christ alone. We're saved by his bloodshed, and he is the perfect sacrifice that allows us to be eternally saved. Before Christ, there was nothing that would eternally save us. You would make a sacrifice of a perfect lamb, a, a goat, a dove, or whatever, but that would not eternally save you. It would temporarily save you. But it is through the blood of Christ that we are eternally saved. Jesus says this in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not Buddha, not Allah, not good grades, not being a good person, a goody two-shoes or whatever. We are only saved by Christ alone. And may we continue to proclaim that message to the ends of the world. That it is only through Christ you can ever be saved. Nothing else. It is only through his provision of his blood. Well, it's not enough to just know these things and to know it intellectually, but there's actually a responsibility that we as humans have to do to respond to this. There's a responsibility and there's this amazing promise that if we respond to it in this way, we will receive this. What is that? The responsibility is that we need to believe in Jesus and the promise, the sure promise is that we will receive eternal life. What does it say in our passage in John uh, 3.16? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's where we get sola fide, uh, which means faith alone. It is only through faith that we're saved. Not through works, not through being a good person, whatever. It's placing our faith in Christ alone that we're saved. You know what it's not in this passage? Notice how John doesn't write this. That whoever attends church, reads the Bible, prays as a kind person, and lists it out as a great person, whatever, should not perish but have eternal life. No. It is whoever believes in him, whoever has faith in Christ, And that is the simple thing that all we need to do is have faith in Jesus. Have faith in Him and you will have eternal life. 
Nor is it this, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have wealth, success, health, happiness, and all these other false promises that I think many believers might do. Um, believe that, you know, there's many prosperity preachers are thinking that if we do, if we believe in him, that God will bless us in a materialistic way. That is not the promise of God here in this passage and throughout scripture. Um, And that's the most amazing thing about the gospel, is that we don't have to do anything because the work has been done. I'm so sorry, guys. I don't know what's going on. (laughs) All right. We have a lot of technical difficulties. Um, But Scripture tells us what? All we have to do is believe, right? (laughs) Um, The amazing thing is that God has already done the work. Um, And I I just want to give a quick relating example of this. Um, Have you guys ever done a group project? You know, youth students, you guys ever do a group project? It sucks, right? Um, It really sucks. Why? Because um, most of us really care about our grades. And it's the worst when you have someone in your group that's like, dude, I'm just, like, you know, they're just like, forget school. Like, I'm, I'm going to ditch. Or, um, and they just, they really don't care. Like, oh, I, I don't mind failing or whatever. That's the worst. And what do you do? You do all the work. And you always see in a group project, there's always a disproportionate amount of, uh, of, of who's doing what. Right? Uh, and it ends up being that if you really care about your grade, you do like 90 or 100% of the work. And it's always the worst thing that right when you get your grade, I mean, it's great. You got the A, but the person who did absolutely nothing in your group got an A. You know what it's like? It's the same thing with the gospel. Christ did everything. And we're the ones who get to receive this A we're just saying, hey, Christ, can, can I put my name on that paper, on that project, you know, on the cross? Christ has done it all for us. And that's all we have to do. And in, in, in the scripture says, just believe and your reward, your promise is a sure eternal life. It's salvation. Christ did the work. Now, I'm emphasizing this point because I think many of us believe this intellectually. Uh, kids, you guys have memorized this from like pretty much since birth, like, you know, if you've been raised in church, you can recite it like with your eyes closed, you can just do it all day. But many times as in my experience of being a youth pastor, I've always just kind of, um, and as I'm discipling young students, I ask them a lot of questions. Hey, do you believe in God? Yes, I do. Do praise God. Do you believe in the scripture? You, you believe that this is God's word? I do. Amen. Uh, so how is one saved? Oh, you just got to believe. Amen. So let me ask you a question. If you die today, where are you going? You're going to heaven? And oftentimes I feel like the answer that kind of comes out is, uh, about that, um, I'm not too sure actually. I said, what, what, you just said you believe that you believe in scripture. You believe that God exists and you believe that the only way to heaven is, is, is by believing in him. It's through Christ. But why don't you believe it? And oftentimes I hear things like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a really good Christian. I, I actually rarely touch the Bible. I don't, I don't pray at all. I don't, I don't, I, I don't know. I, just, I keep struggling with the same sins. Well, what does scripture say? It, it's a clear promise. 
And so there is something going on internally where it's either you're believing a lie of Satan or maybe you don't believe in Scripture. Again, what is Sola Scriptura? I hope this would be our, um, our almost foundational principle is that Scripture alone would be our final authority. Not our feelings, not uh, different voices, but what does God's word say and what does it promise in John 3.16? It says, when you believe, you will have eternal life. Now, I think the gospel would not be complete if we do not also talk about that there is a consequence, that there is a coming judgment. And this passage highlights continuously that there is judgment. Um, And it's this point. Some will perish eternally. Not all will be saved. What does our passage say? They not perish, might be saved through him. Whoever does not believe is what? Condemned already. You see, God would not be a just God. A God of justice if he didn't condemn non-believers. Imagine this with me. In a courtroom, a judge who has, let's say, has all the power to bring justice upon a murderer. And he says to this murderer, again, you killed someone again? Your Honor, I I know, I'm sorry. I said I I would never do it again. But uh, this guy really made me so angry. I just, I couldn't control myself. All right, man. What did I tell you? When you get angry, just, just walk away. Just walk away. Don't choose to engage him. All right, now, if I let you walk out of this courtroom, and I just, will, will you promise me that you'll never do this again? Yes, Your Honor, I, I promise. I'll never make this mistake. All right, I hope to never see you again in this courtroom. If that happened today, there would be riots. There would probably be murders, to be honest. Um, it would be chaos. Because we're like, that's, where is justice in this world? Well, likewise, if God doesn't bring condemnation or judgment, He's not a just God. I love these two quotes from R.C. Sproul and John Piper. It says this. A God who is all love, all mercy, all grace, but no sovereignty, with no justice, with no holiness, and no wrath. You know what that is? That is not God. That's an idol. You cannot just take, oh, yes, God is a loving God. Yay. All people are saved. No. That is not what the Bible proclaims. All are not saved. Why would we have this condition then to believe in him? You cannot just take out the justice portion. You cannot take out the wrath of God, the holiness of God. This is who God is. Piper then says, judgment of sinners, what does this do? It magnifies God's justice. It magnifies it. Then secondly, when he does save believers, what does it do? It magnifies his grace. And this is why it's in his nature to be just and to bring judgment. Those who do not repent and believe in his name. And so there is a result that ends up happening. There is something that I think determines almost what true faith is the result. The result is... True faith is not just an intellectual understanding of who God is, but it's a deep conviction and belief in God that actually causes change in you. Changes to your behavior, your actions, 
to obey God's commands. Throughout Scripture, he keeps talking about that. If you believe, there's change that needs to happen in your life. Verse 21, it says, whoever does what is true, what do they do? They come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You see, there is a relationship then between believing and doing and belief and change. It goes together. You cannot say, I believe and I have never changed. I am the same as I was before Christ and I am the same after Christ. No, it works together. In James chapter 2, verse 17, it says, Also, have works is dead. <laughs> Jeez. It tells us that yes, we believe in scripture in John 3:16 that you need to believe to have eternal life. But it's not enough to just have a mere intellectual understanding, right? And which is why I think so many young people or believers uh, in churches today just they struggle with the idea of having eternal life because they think Well, I've got to be a really good person. I've got to almost earn my salvation. Well, no. Scripture does proclaim it is through faith alone that you're saved. But your true faith will lead into works. The Holy Spirit, as it enters into you, will cause change. It will move you. And yes, you will not be perfect. And that's not what I'm saying. That the moment you accept Christ and the moment you declare and confess him as Lord, that now you are perfect, um, you know, perfectly obeying God's word. No. But what it means is you are now aligning yourself with his word, wanting to obey. Verse 21, it talks about uh, there is the evildoer and the one who does the truth. All right, this is the last, last, last one. Okay, um, and there is this sharp contrast between these two individuals in Scripture: the evildoer versus the one who does the truth. Is that there's an indication that believers do something and that they do the truth; they carry out the commands of God. You see, is that there is something that is so different between the two. The evildoer, what does he do? He embraces who they are. And they reflect who they are. They believe in what they want to believe in. But what does the one who does truth do? They embrace Christ. They embrace scripture. And they reflect who God is, not themselves. I love what R.C. Sproul says here. It says, true faith that connects us to Christ always manifests itself in works. It always does. It leads into that. Um, and I want to give this one last illustration. Um, I, I heard about this story, and I was just, I had to, like, almost fact check it. Like, is this real? This is crazy. Uh, there was this guy named Blondin. Ever, anyone ever heard him? Or this famous tightrope um, person way back, I forget when, is way, way back in the day. Um, and what he would do is have a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. And this guy was so skilled at doing this that uh, he did the most crazy things. I mean, there's a time where he crossed it with, like, stilts, basically, like, crutches, like, like being on, like, wooden sticks on a rope. Um, 
And trust me, this is hard. Like uh, last week at the wake weekend, uh, a lot of the youth students, we, we did like this ropes course. We were like harnessed in. That's super hard, like walking across a rope. But this guy is so skilled. I mean, there was one time he like cooked an omelet in the middle of the Niagara Falls, like while like balancing. This guy was so skilled. And one of the things, and I saw all these other crowds, they would gather like weekly. Wow, like what's Blondin going to do this week? What's he going to do? And they're like so pumped up. And one week he says, do you guys believe I can carry someone across this rope? And everyone's like, yeah. They're like, so, they're like, you can do anything. You're the man. Right? They like believe in this guy. He goes, great. So who's going to ride on my back? And all of a sudden goes like, yeah. Ooh, shoot. And no one's like, no one's willing. They're like, ah. He goes, well, I thought you believed. Come on, somebody. I thought you believed. Come on, get on my back. I'll take you front and back. You get the most amazing ride of your life. And there was only one person that actually raised their hand. And it was actually his mom. Right? He's like, hey. And, uh, and the story is, it's either he either wheelbarrowed her or, um, yeah, on a wheelbarrow, or he you know, put her on her back. Uh, I don't know why there's two versions of this story. But um, the point is this. I think that's an image of true faith, is it not? Is that it's not just, I agree, God. Yes, Amen. You died for me and I believe in you. Yes. You want me to share the gospel? Uh, nah, I'm good. I just, it's just you and me, God. It's just so, you and me, God. It's, it's all about our love relationship. No, if you really believe, you're jumping in. You're jumping into the deep end. You're committing. and You're surrendering to him. Again, not perfectly, but you're now allowing the Holy Spirit to work within you. And so... It should do something for us. And I think when we're thinking about all the things that we just mentioned, the whole gospel message, I hope and pray that our hearts are not just numb and be like, oh, I know these things. Amen. I believe. But I hope that we have a deep conviction then to have a couple applications, which there's three that I thought of. I think one, it's to believe in God. You can thank him for his great mercy upon us and all these things. But to surrender to God and his sovereignty by obeying his word. And living out our faith. To say, yes, God, I do believe in you. And I will follow you until the ends of the earth. I will be a fisher of men. I will do what you command me to. You want me to love my enemies? I will do that because I believe in you. And, and I'm weak. And I seek to obey you. And I align myself to your teaching. But then the second and third one is what I'm really hoping that we would really be deeply convicted upon. And this is why I talked about regeneration before faith. I think if that is our personal theological conviction um, through scripture, if, if that is our conclusion that it is through God's regeneration that leads to our faith, one thing that I think would deeply convict us is that we would understand that then we are completely helpless. There is nothing we can do. Parents, I want to share this with you. One of my greatest honors and privileges is being a youth pastor. I get to see, you know, kids commit their lives to Christ. I get to see their lives being changed. But one of the things I have to really remind myself and constantly be in fear and trembling before the Lord as I preach, as a disciple, as I pastor young kids, or is to know that I don't have the power to change them. I wish I could just be like, let's all go to heaven. I wish that my preaching was so powerful that it would lead into repentance. 
And that is my prayer every single week. God, I say, preach your word. That it is you who speaks and not me. It is your word being proclaimed. And there's nothing I can do. I'm completely powerless, God. I can't change them. Parents, you are completely powerless. You cannot change your own kids. Who can? The one who is able, which is God. God is able. And so what should that do in our own hearts? It should beckon us to be missional. To understand that, man, I am helpless. And so, God, I want to share and make every use of my time to tell my kids about Jesus. I want to tell my coworkers, my family members about Jesus. Because, God, it doesn't matter if I have the best youth program. That if I'm the best preacher, if I'm the best friend to them, I am a nobody. But, God, I know the power lies in you. And I call upon you because you are the one I call. And so let's be missional in our application. Let's share the gospel. Regardless of your view on election, regardless of your view on regeneration preceding faith or faith preceding regeneration, may we be deeply convicted to be involved in missions work. Yesterday we sent off a Thailand team. I'm so thankful that uh, many members sent them off. I wish I could have been there, uh, but I couldn't. Um, either be a goer or a sender. Well, actually, it's not either or. We're actually called to be both. We're called to be involved in missions work, to share. doesn't matter how young you are. If you are called a believer, this is not an option. It is a command, a directive of God. And that is our identity. But lastly, man, this is where it really deeply convicts me. Is pray for God's mercy on your family, your friends, and the world. You know, I, I, this is one thing that I'm so thankful for when I look at the language of Crossway. When I read your guys' prayer requests and, you know, in our uh, prayer meetings or whatever, it says, pray for God's mercy over my brother, my sister, so-and-so. Pray for his mercy. And that's the implication, again, of regeneration preceding faith is that no one can save them. It doesn't matter how great of a gospel presentation you give, how well you know theology. There's been amazing theologians who have preached and yet people have heard them and be like, oh, I still choose not to believe. Why? Because I believe that it is God who draws them to himself. He gives them that regeneration in their hearts. Being born again. There's no perfect formula to make someone believe. But it is God's touch. Parents, I hope that we would all cry out for our kids. You know, um, I'm deeply so thankful to be here because I feel this immense immense support from so many parents that hey i i'm with you i'm praying with you let me know if there's anything i can do but i hope and pray that you would only not just rely on me to be a soul minister into their lives don't trust that to me don't trust that to these children's teachers not saying they're not good people they are good people but it means I will trust them to preach and to teach the word, but I too will do it. And I will get on my knees and beckon upon the Lord because he alone can save. And I cry out for God's perfect timing over my own child, over my own family. I pray that we would pray with deep conviction for God's mercy over this world and that we would all respond to him in this way. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace.
God, because of your love for us, you have provided a way out for us. You sent your one and only son so that, God, we can respond to you. And I thank you, God, for that. That we may know you through your son, the perfect sacrifice. The one who bridged us to you, God. And so, Lord, we come confessing you as Lord. And we come wanting to align ourselves with your word by obeying you in everything. And so, Father, I pray, God, again, if there's anyone that does not know you, I pray for your mercy upon them. I pray, Lord, that you would lead them into saving faith. I pray that, God, that you would use us as your church to proclaim the gospel unto the world, knowing that we don't know when someone will be saved, when that is, or who is and who isn't saved but that we just submit to you because you are sovereign, the Lord of the harvest. We call on your name because it is through your name that we are saved. Father, again, we thank you. Pray that your name be lifted on high throughout the ends of the earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.